good. Forgotten sayings. We're thinking about those sayings that Jesus said that are well recorded and well documented in literature down through the ages. But when perhaps it comes to putting those things into our ordinary lives, sowing them into our everyday, it's very easy to uh, forget. Today's saying is this one, don't worry. And um, sometimes you will come and you'll listen to a message and you will think, there's nothing in that for me, that must be for a friend. Uh, And no doubt this morning when we think about worry, it's not anything that perhaps we personally can relate to, it's more something that we'll be listening for somebody else. Any worriers in the house? Any liars in the house? Don't worry. We are part of a culture that has produced fantastic worriers. In fact, we're the only creatures perhaps on God's earth that worry. We love it, relish it, flourish at it. We even use worrying as a mark of maturity. As soon as it's Mother's Day, we'll pick on the fathers. How many, of, how many of you fathers have said to your children, when are you going to start worrying about your future? When are you going to start worrying about your exams? When are you going to start worrying about your homework? Worrying about keeping your bedroom tidy? We want them to grow up and begin to worry just like we do. We make it a mark of maturity. And their abandonment, carefree living drives us mad. Because it's only fair that they should worry in the same way as us. We excuse worrying, of course, because if you had what I have to worry about, then you'd worry too. It's not that I'm a worrier, it's just that I've got worrying things going on. First tweet, worrying is not about your circumstances, it's about you. Worrying is not about your circumstances, it's about you. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have finally made it to that holiday that you have spent months, maybe a year or more, looking forward to and anticipating. Every day you've pushed yourself to work through the rain because one day, for a few days, you'll be in glorious sunshine. And when you finally arrive at your holiday destination that you have worked hard for and paid for and you totally deserve, it is absolutely picture postcard perfect. The beach is clean and unlittered. The water is pure and fresh. The sun is bright and shining. The sky is blue. And there you are. You've even made it on the very first day. You have your own sunbed. You've put out your towel. You've got your amber solaire on. You're lying back and the sun is beginning to caress your body. Unbridled bliss. One second, two seconds, three seconds. Probably no more than six seconds have gone by and without any invitation or any help, seemingly from nowhere, in your mind comes this thought, did I lock the back door? (laughs) Did Did I lock the back door? We've been burgled already. Perhaps the kid next door has already killed the fish. And it's over. Your unbridled bliss as you phone home to discover that you did actually lock the back door. 
Have you ever gone back to discover that you'd left it open? Yes? Well, <laughs> that gives the rest of us no reassurance then to, to push on because it's all in our heads. <laughs> Worry is about you and not about your circumstances. And Jesus exposes in these verses some of the truth about worrying. Jesus says that worrying is unhelpful. I tell you, do not worry about your life. It's unhelpful because it never accomplishes anything. It never solves anything. It's stressing without or stewing without doing. Like a racing car, we rev the engine and the fumes burst out the back, but we don't go anywhere. Worrying's never solved a problem. It's never changed the past. And worry cannot control the future. Corrie Ten Boom, the famous uh, uh, writer from out of the war times, writing on forgiveness and all kinds of devotional things, put, put it like this. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Jesus says that worrying is unhelpful. He also says that it's unreasonable. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Worrying always exaggerates our problems, makes the mountains, uh, makes mountains out of molehills. It exaggerates what's going on. How many times have you started with a little worry that you've massaged and nurtured and cultivated until it grew into something almighty and nothing actually has changed? other than we allowed our minds to feed it and to allow it to grow. To worry about something you can't change is useless because you can't change it. To worry about something you can change is stupid, just change it. Worrying about something you can't change is useless. Worrying about something you can change is just stupid because we can change it. I heard once a lovely illustration about the way worry takes on this kind of reality that is in effect so much more significant in our perception than it is in reality. If you were to take an area like London Road and the whole neighborhood around it, uh, up to Norwich Road, down perhaps uh, Hanford Road, and take that whole area of this neighborhood. If this neighborhood was to be enveloped in a dense fog, the amount of water would be less than the amount of water in this glass. But yet the fog seems so overwhelming, so penetrating, so disorientating, and yet it's just a few drops of water really in the end. And our worry can be like that, so overwhelming, so disorientating, penetrating so many aspects of our lives and our emotions, and yet we need to see it for what it is. 40% of things you worry about never happen. 30% of what we worry about is stuff that's already happened. Figure that out. 12% of what our worry is, is needless worry about our health. 10% of our worry is so petty we're embarrassed to talk about it. Turn to your neighbor and talk about one of the worries that you never talk about. No, just a joke, just a joke, just a joke. Which leaves just 8% of the stuff that's really worth stressing about, apparently so. Worry is unreasonable, it's unhelpful, and it's also un.
healthy. An anxious heart, Proverbs says, weighs a man and a woman or a woman down. Your body wasn't made to worry. It's an unnatural reality. When you worry, you get ulcers and backaches and headaches and insomnia and allergies and, 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 and. Worry kind of creates a a sickness of the soul. And it's not just those physical things. The, the, The term sickness of the soul, literally, we become emotionally wrecked as worry descends upon us. And we can't fight our way out of it sometimes, like we can't fight our way out of the fog on occasions. Give me just 10 seconds. Give me 20 seconds. No, it's all right. Twenty-five seconds. Are you worrying? Are you worrying for me? I'm worried. Does it help? Great. Good. An anxious heart weighs a man or a woman down. Could it be, could it be that God's kingdom life in us gets squashed and crushed and marginalized and hemmed in and restricted because we allow the fog, the density of the fog of worry to cloud our lives. Anyone know what we're talking about? When we talk about feeling physically just, my body's not doing what it should do. And my spirit is not alive as it should be alive. No wonder Jesus says, not just once, but in this whole section of scripture in Matthew 6, do not worry. So how how do we? How do we embrace this word of Jesus not to worry? How do we allow not just the the idea, because we all know the idea. We all know that we shouldn't do it. We all understand that that, that when we worry, we simply feed those things that are eating away at our our soul. How do we do it? Well, we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament, which is a a metaphor. It wasn't. It was a real story, but it also acts uh, for me as a metaphor about how we might respond to worry and the way worry treats us. Chapter um, 17 of 1 Samuel. Someone could find it in the Pew Bibles and we'll get a page number. That would be really great. So 1 Samuel chapter 17. 288? Great. 288. 288. 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a really well-known story of David and Goliath. Goliath is the perfect worry worker. We will see in a moment that he instills panic and fear into the Israelites. David, on the other hand, will become the worry slayer. And so just even before we get into the detail of this chapter, it gives us a choice right at the beginning. Where will we choose to align our lives? 
with the worry worker or with the worry slayer? We all know worry workers, don't we? People that cause us to worry even if we weren't. And we'd all like to be around more worry slayers that give us a sense of hope and confidence and trust in a God who is with us. So, the story, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. Uh, Picture the scene. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Philistines and Israelites were bitter enemies. There was a massive uh, valley, a ravine, big stream down the middle where David would eventually get his five stones. On this side is the Philistine camp uh, with their armies. On this side is the Israelites and their armies and so on. And Goliath was one of the Philistine champion soldiers. He was, as it says there in the words, nine feet tall. Verse 5, he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze, uh, bronze javelin, so it goes on. He had a a, a spear shaft uh, with all the weights and so on there. Uh, You'll find looking at me a really good visual aid. Uh, This tall, strapping uh, lad. For the benefit of those listening online, the preacher today resembles Arnold Schwarzenegger, but rather a bit more intelligent. So he's massive. He's got a size 20 collar going on, 56-inch waist. His biceps are bursting, thigh muscles rippling, and his loud boasts literally echoes as he gets up in the morning, shouts across the ravine. You can almost hear the words echoing around the valley. Then the Philistine said, verse 10, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Every word produced panic and fear in the Israelite camp. Every word created worry. He was a worry machine, a worry worker. And there was no one willing to take the worry on. And so instead of dealing with the worry, they just let the worry get bigger and bigger every day. The king offered any soldier who would go and fight this Goliath, this worry worker, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. You can have great riches. You can have a lifelong tax exemption. Now there's a thought. But nobody was tempted to go and fight Goliath. And so the worry was just there over the whole of the Israelite army every day. Producing this panic and this fear. Did the Israelites get more confident and bolder? No, they got weaker and more frightened. That's what worry does. It robs us of our sense of uh, of perspective. And I guess we all know the roar of a Goliath in our lives. We all know the shout of a worry that hovers over us and intimidates us. And it happened day in, day out for 40 days, verse 16. The Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. And I don't know about you, but your worries and mine probably do the same. How many seconds are you awake before that worry hits you again? Do you know that moment when you open your eyes and you have about one and a half seconds peace before you remember? Is that just me? No, a few. And as you lay down at night, maybe after the busyness of the day, you've been able to set it all aside. But as you lay down at night and you begin to relax your mind, there it is. 
day and night. That's how worry works. That's the kind of grip that it has on our lives. And just like these Israelites, every morning they poked their head out of the tent for another day. They heard the booming voice of this worry every time they lay down asleep. So they would hear it again day after day. The worry worker is alive and well. You may recognize this Goliath at work in your life this morning. Enter the worry slayer. Big cheer. I can tell you're excited about that. David shows up. Now, David wasn't even in the army. He was just a little shepherd boy. He was so insignificant that his dad had forgot to mention him when uh, he was asked by a prophet, tell me who your children are. Whoops, that's an awkward father moment. Too young even to be mentioned. And he arrives at the camp taking some packed lunch and some supplies to his brothers who were in the army. And to cut a long story short, David was mad. He was mad that this Goliath was able to intimidate the people of God day in, day out. He was mad that this worry was just getting bigger and greater and no one was taking it on. He was mad at the way God's people were being mocked and God himself, in a way, was being teased. So David said, I'll go, I'll fight. And they wanted to help him. They wanted him to have armor. They wanted him this and that. David said, it's no use. I'm just going to take what I know. And I know five stones. And I know a sling. And David was a shepherd boy. He would king. He would kill a lion with the power of his sling and just a single stone. And so he took five stones. Actually, he'd only need one. So why did he take five? Because Goliath had four brothers. That's a brilliant answer. I've never heard that answer before. That's totally brilliant. Is that true? Even closely true? You reckon? That's fantastic. Okay, look out, Goliath's brothers. He'd only need one for Goliath. And he took the sling and he shot Goliath, it says, right between the forehead. And Goliath was uh, knocked out and then he went and cut off his head. The giant is dead. Another big cheer. So a little shepherd boy deals with the worry when all the armies of God allow it just to get bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger. Now, what's, what's the secret? What can we learn about David in this scenario that we can then help feed our understanding of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, look, hey, don't worry. I mean, he makes it sound simple, right? Just don't worry. But it's not, well, it might be simple, but it's hard to do. What's the secret? How does a worry slayer give a worry a fatal blow? There are two simple and powerful realities that I think were true about David, and I think are reflected in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, which I'd love us to take home with us this morning after we've slayed a few worries before we come to the end of our time together. The first is this. David knew to whom he belonged. David knew to whom he belonged. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. He was an Israelite. Our God, it's in his name that I come. We belong ultimately to him. The secret of David's success, perhaps, is summed up in what he once wrote in a famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. So don't worry, which is basically what he said. The Lord is my shepherd, so just chill. I'll have everything that I need. 
I shall not be in want. And the truth is that David ultimately didn't face Goliath with his sling. He faced Goliath with his God. Verse 45, if you've still got 1 Samuel 17 open in front of you. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Like David, Jesus also is saying that our ability to come against our worries and our fears is directly related to our understanding of our identity. It's about knowing whose we are, to whom we belong. And Jesus makes the same point back in Matthew chapter 6. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Answer, yes, of course. Jesus repeats the same idea again down in verse 30. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. The promise for us as children of God is that he's got everything covered. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And so I'll take a sling and one small stone and I'll shoot it at my worry because God is my provider. Paul said some amazing words along these lines, didn't he? My God will meet all your needs. How many of your needs? All of them. It's an amazing little word. All your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. It's all covered. The thing that we're worried about when we take out an insurance policy is usually the thing that isn't covered. They don't often tell you what isn't covered. They leave you to find that out when you have a claim. That's what insurance is. Look for where you're not covered. I can tell I worked in insurance. That's my best advice coming to you. Or, my God will supply all your needs. And yet we live with nagging doubt. We live with uncertainty. We live with worry and question about whether he really will meet all our needs. And God says, I've got it all covered. It's not only unhelpful and unreasonable and unhealthy, it's also unnecessary if Jesus himself is the great shepherd of the sheep. So every time we worry, Every time we lack that confidence that God has everything under control, we begin to act like those who do not believe. We begin to live in that aspect of our lives as atheists, as if God, our Heavenly Father, doesn't exist and doesn't care. Worry is not only so detrimental to us in the way that we've said, it's a massive affront to Father God who loves us and calls us his children, who says, I've got it all covered. When we think, no, God's actually God's not got this covered, so I'm going to worry about it. 
God's not going to pull through for us, so I'm going to spend tonight being anxious about it. God hasn't got that all sorted out, so I'm going to try and take matters into my own hands and fix it for me. Let's push on a bit. It's all quite challenging at this moment about what we really believe about the God that we love and serve, about the God who's called us, invites us to call him Father and for us to live as his children. Notice what uh, David says. He says, Lord Almighty, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Could it be that areas in our lives where we are prone to worry are areas where we've not allowed him to be Lord yet? Could it be that areas of our lives where we still are prone to worry are nothing more than areas of our lives where we fail to bring under his lordship? If he's Lord, we might say boss or CEO or chairman of the board, the person who's on top, the one calling the shots. If he is Lord, then he ultimately is the one who is in control. And worry, really, if you strip it all away, is all about control. We worry because we cannot control the uncontrollable. In fact, that's probably quite a really good definition of worry. Worry is always an attempt to control something that is uncontrollable. And so worry is assuming responsibility that actually, in the end, only God himself has. And so when you try and when I try to control that which is uncontrollable, kids, they're uncontrollable, aren't they? Money, that's pretty uncontrollable. The environment seems uncontrollable. The future's quite uncontrollable. And we worry about these things because we cannot control them. And so worry is exposed. We're acting like we're in charge. We're acting like these things ultimately are things that we are responsible for. In a sense we are, but in another sense that we're not. Worry assumes that we're in charge. There's a lovely story about um, uh, uh, a small business that was advertising for uh, a second accountant, I think it was, in the business. And uh, an accountant fresh out of business school applied for the job and he went for the interview and uh, the guy who owned the company said, um, I'm looking for someone with an accounting degree to work some figures, but mainly I'm looking for someone to do my worrying for me. I don't want to worry about this business anymore. I don't want to worry about money anymore. That will be your job. You'll take all the money worries off my back. I see, he said. And how much will I get paid for doing this job? Oh, at least 80, 100,000 maybe. The man was a little shocked. How on earth can such a small business afford that amount of money? That, said the owner, will be your first worry. <laughs> we try and control what is uncontrollable when we are invited instead to know God as our Father. Worry assumes that we're in charge. One of the tough gigs as a father and as a mother or as a parent is when your children worry about things you wish they wouldn't. 
Yeah? And, and you wish somehow that they wouldn't worry about it, especially while they're kids, because you kind of know that it's your job to do the worrying, despite what I'm saying. <laughs> you know. And, and so you, you kind of want to assume, because you're the one in charge, you're the one responsible, and they're worrying like you're not capable of fixing it. Sometimes they might have a point. But in the kingdom sense, we worry as if God's not able to fix it. How that grieves his heart when we worry. Because we're saying, God, I'm not sure that you'll come through for, the, for me in this. I'm not sure you're good enough to sort this out. I'm going to worry just to remind you. And God's heart is a little grieved, I think, that we would stay late at night Worrying about things that in the end God says, hey, that's my job. I'll look after that. I want you to sleep. So David knew to whom he belonged. And, and, and one of, the, one of the, the kind of major thoughts, threads to take away this morning is that all of us want to see whatever's causing our worry sorted out so that we won't worry anymore. Yeah? If only that happens, then I won't need to worry about it anymore. The biggest problem with that is I'll give you another six seconds and there'll be something else that will have taken its place because that's how it works. The, the remedy, the antidote is not to see the particular worry that we have right now fixed, resolved and sorted. The antidote is to know God who is a father that we can trust. David knew to whom he belonged. Secondly, David knew to where he was looking. He knew where he was looking. He knew where his focus was. You see, if you read 1 Samuel 17 carefully, everybody is thinking about Goliath. Everybody is looking at Goliath. Everybody is talking about Goliath. And when David says, I'm going I'm to go and take him on, they still can't stop bleating on about it. He's really big, David. No one else has ever beaten him, David. You'll need Saul's armor, David. Where are their thoughts? Where are they looking? Where are their focus? Their thoughts are consumed by this man. What's David thinking about? Verse 37 there on the screen. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Where's David's focus? Who is David thinking is really great and all-powerful? The Lord. The Lord who delivered me. The Lord who will sort this out. The Lord that will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Everyone's Goliath focused on hearing, verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Do you spend a lot of your time discussing your worry? Do you spend a lot of your time thinking about your worry? When you get up in the morning, where are you looking when that worry pops back into your mind? Look at what David says, verse 26. Of 1 Samuel 17. This is the first words of David in the whole of the scriptures. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? For David, his focus on the living God was all-consuming and always central. And so as he takes this first step onto the center of the stage in that particular period of biblical history, David has God full smack center stage. And that's part of the whole strength 
of his whole reign, kingship, and so on. Even as he faces Goliath, who mocks and taunts him, he refuses to take his focus off God. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, so even as he's looking at Goliath, even as he's walking down the ravine and running up the other side to meet him, even then, David has got God full and center focused. He says to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you together in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I'll give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the... The battle is the Lord. The battle is the... The Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And so there's a whole new subplot that emerges between David and Goliath. It's not just David versus Goliath, but it's God-focused versus giant focus or worry focus. God-focused or worry giant focus. See, all eyes except David were on the worry, but he became the worry slayer. Can you become worry slayers? Not just your own worries, but those around you. Because you are God-focused, God-consumed, God-saturated, God-caught up. The people knew all about Goliath. What they needed to know was all about the living God. You see, David never asks about Goliath's skill or Goliath's age or his social standing or his battle record or his IQ doesn't ask the weight of his spear or the size of his shield or about the skull and crossbones emblazoned on his, uh, on his shield. All David needs to know is God. And off he goes and slays the worry. So nine times in these small verses, David mentions God and he has a couple of oblique references to, oblique references to, uh, to the giant, to Goliath. Can I ask you, Do you talk four times as much about the power of God as you do about the worry that's in your head? Four times as much focus on the glory of God than allow the thought, the worry, that would so easily consume you to rush around your head and your mind. It takes real discipline, doesn't it? To keep focused on God when we want to look at the worry that's around us. But David saw the giant. But he saw God so much more. See, this is not about pretending that the worry doesn't exist or that the problem isn't there. David absolutely knew the worry existed. He absolutely knew the problem was there. But he saw behind it God so much bigger and so much greater. And so with a God-saturated soul and with a God-filled mind, he rushes down the valley. And a terrible joke's coming. He got ahead of his giant. (laughs) Could it be that this week it's time to load our God-given slings with some truths that will kill some giants? You see, because the Lord Almighty, who invites you to call him Father, 
who says you're his child. He's unchanging, is our God. He's uncaused, he's uncaged, he's ungoverned. He's awesome, he's holy, he's other. He rules the world both day and night. He does not change, he always is. He was uncaused, no one breathed life into him. No one gave birth to him, no one caused him. No act brought him forth. The one who creates was never himself created. The one who makes was himself never made. No wonder the psalmist says, before the mountains were born, you brought me forth, or you brought forth the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I invite you to close your eyes just for a moment. The God who here fills this place, who invites you to know him as a father. This God, this God doesn't check the weather, he makes it. He doesn't defy gravity, he created it. This God who fills this place just now is the one without limit, the one without end. He's the one of all place and of all time. He's the one that will always be. He doesn't fear an earthquake, a real one or a metaphoric one. He doesn't tremble at a tornado, a real one or a metaphoric one. He sleeps through storms and he calms the winds with a word. We need a God that can still storms, who can defeat death, who holds life in his powerful grip. We need a God who can place a hundred billion stars in our galaxy and a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. We need a God who can shake two fists of flesh into 75 to 100 billion nerve cells, each with over 10,000 connections to other nerve cells, and place it in your skull and mine and call it a brain. We need a God who's so numbingly mighty, yet can come in the softness of the night, and with a touch as tender as balm. We need a God like that, who would say, come to me, And call me and know me as Father. The invitation to us this morning is to lay our worries down. Not because they don't matter. Not because they're insignificant. But to lay them down. Because we have a Father who loves us. And promises to care for us, to supply all our needs. We need a God who lovingly would take our minds and our eyes this morning and turn them away from the things that they have become so preoccupied with and place them back on God. And his majesty.